listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. Creative Pep Talk exists to help you thrive as a creative person. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with Creative Pep Talk and all my creative work by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's jump into today's episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, AndyJPizza.com, if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. So I think about Harry Potter more than normal people. Uh, I'm a a big Harry Potter fan. Uh, I, yeah, I'm deeply passionate about it. I think about it a lot. I think about how, you know, what is our modern day equivalent to Voldemort? (laughs) Not that it's like, uh, not that Harry Potter actually happened. Uh, long ago, and this is the modern day times, but just, I mean, like in our world, what is the equivalent to Voldemort? And here's what I think it is. I think it's Amazon. So just stay with me. So if you're in a store, have you ever been in a store and you're looking at everything and your friend or your spouse picks something up and they're like, I think I'm going to get this. And you notice the price and it just seems a little overpriced and you hate to say it, you hate to do it, but you pause and you stare into your friend's eyes and you say, I think it might be cheaper on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> and it's even worse because if you're, in, if you're in a bookstore, it's even worse because it's, it's just like being in the leaky cauldron. Uh, if you whisper the name Amazon, everybody in the store is going to turn and look at you in cold blood and say, what are you doing saying that word in this place? Just like being in Diagon Alley. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think about, you know, I, I mean, I feel like maybe part of it is because I'm a dad. So, you know, if you don't have kids, you probably can't understand this same level of passion because like when you're a dad... You have a baby, and they're, and when you have a baby, you realize the DNA, the personality, they come out with it. It's packaged in the deal, and as they get older, you just see that personality come out. It's already there. It's almost not developing. It's just coming out step by step, and as they get older, and you look back into the past... Your past memories actually uh, fill up with meaning. They actually get more meaningful 
as you as they grow and so when you think about them when they're little you can see all of that personality just waiting to come out and i think that as a dad when i look at my sweet baby hermione in the first episode of the movies uh <laughs> that when she comes into the train car her first scene and uh, Ron is bragging about knowing some some spell. He knows a spell already. And she comes in and she says, well, let's see then. And when she says that, I almost tear up because I'm like, oh, there she is. She's, she's so little, but she's already the little know-it-all. Oh, typical Hermione. Uh, <laughs> and you can know that I'm like way too invested in all of this if I'm feeling fatherly over these three children. Um, it's getting super, super weird. Um, but <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I had this other idea too where I thought that like God at some point brought in J.K. Rowling for a brand refresh with some of these ideas, these ideas of the chosen one, the ultimate battle of good and evil, the hero's journey. Like we need a brand refresh. We gotta get the kids into some of these ideas. Uh, and I think about like, um, you know, <laughs> I think about the time that, uh, uh, J.K. Rowling must have been writing this. That it could have been in the, in the I don't know the actual time frame, but I think it could have been in that same time zone of the movie Bedazzled coming out where with Brandon Fraser, but it's where Elizabeth Hurley plays Satan. And I just imagine that just ticking God off because he's like, gosh, all the kids are getting into this. Satan's getting all the fanfare, getting played by these <laughs> this Elizabeth Hurley, like, oh man, this is just messed up. I got it. What's my answer to this? And so he brings in J.K. Rowling, and uh, <laughs> you didn't know you're going to get a bedazzled uh, reference today, um, but here it is. So he brings in J.K. Rowling, and it's like Mad Men. It's like a meeting in the conference room, and uh, God explains the situation. We got bedazzled. The kids aren't into it anymore. We got to get them. How do we get them back into this story? And uh, JK's like, all right, check it out. She whips out a Bible and she's like, okay, there's a lot of good ideas in here. Some really good nuggets. But here's what I'm thinking. And God leans in. And he's like, what? Tell me. I'm, I'm desperate. I got to figure this out. I got to get these kids back into these ideas. And... Uh, J.K. Rowling's like, look, <clears throat> bread and wine, it's old news. Kids aren't into it anymore. Here's what I'm thinking. Jelly beans. And God's like, jelly beans? And she's like, wait, no, no, listen, I'm not talking just regular jelly beans. I'm saying every single flavor you can imagine, jelly beans. I'm talking vomit, diaper, golden pickled goose. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and and God's like, surely you're just kidding. And uh, uh, and she says, don't call me Shirley. I am JK, but I've never been more serious about anything in my life. And God stops, looks her in the eye, and says, do whatever you got to do. And I, I played out this whole scenario in my mind, and it's just absolutely ridiculous. But the truth, if I'm completely honest with you, I think in these stories, there are some real nuggets of truth, the secrets of the universe. And today, we're going to study the first book uh, we're not going to do we're not going to do a series of podcasts based on, you know, one per book. Although now that I've had that idea, that sounds really tempting. We're going to go with the first book. And here's why. Uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, if you're in the UK, I believe it's the Philosopher's Stone, uh, which I don't know what the what the discrepancy here is, but uh, we're going to do the Sorcerer's Stone and here's why. So the Sorcerer's Stone, one of the things that it can do is Alchemy. It can take regular metals and turn them into gold. And I've always thought that creativity at its best 
is even better than alchemy, even better than this fantastical idea of turning regular metals into gold because in creativity, you can take, you don't even have to have metal. You can have a blank sheet of paper. And as an illustrator, I've been fascinated by this idea that you, if you play your cards right, if you do a great job, you can turn a sheet of paper into a thousand bucks, right? If you get the right job, you perform the right way, you can even turn it into more. I think sometimes about uh, franchises like uh, Disney and how that started with creativity and now it's a billion dollar industry. And although I don't think that's the point, I do think that it is magical. And so today on the show, I want to talk about what are the obstacles in between you and creative gold. Maybe you've got the wrong stone. Maybe the stone you're using is producing brass or copper, uh, maybe even silver. But how do we get to that creative gold that you have within you? And so just like in the Sorcerer's Stone, we're going to go through the series of obstacles that are stopping you from your best work. Let's get in. So in the Sorcerer's Stone, at the end of the book slash movie, Harry and his friends have to make their way through these obstacles to get the Sorcerer's Stone. And one of the obstacles is this room full of flying keys. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of keys flying around there. And they didn't just pick up the first key that they saw and tried to use it on the door. They looked through the whole group and tried to figure out which of these keys is the one that's going to work. And so here's number one. Number one is too few ideas. The first thing that's stopping you from your best creative work, from getting that real creative gold, is that you're not coming up with enough ideas. You're trying to work smart instead of work hard. You're trying to think of quality, not quantity, but you need some quantity. You need the freedom to throw tons of stuff out there that's not going to be used before you get to the good stuff. Seth Godin says it like this, that the people that have great ideas have more terrible ideas than anyone else because they just have more ideas. They just put themselves out there more on a regular basis, coming up with lots and lots of ideas. In my own life, this has always been true. I have tested it over and over and over. When I get an illustration job, my temptation is to send over one sketch. Because I get one idea, I think I like it uh, for whatever reason. I'm like, yeah, I like this. I think this is it. And I want to just send it over and say, we're going to do this idea. It's just so good. I'm ready to do it. If I force myself to come up with more ideas, I almost never pick that first idea that I was so in love with at the start. And here's why I think that is. I think part of it is, uh, for me at least, it's an insecurity. It's a pressure uh, you know, if I get one idea that I kind of like, then I feel safe. It's like a security blanket of like, I got my idea. Okay, we did it. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it, but now I've got it. And I just want to hold on to it and squeeze it. But the thing is, is your first idea is usually predicated on pressure and pressure is not the right antidote for your best creative work. And so if you know that you're going to throw several ideas away, you can enter the brainstorming phase light. You can go into that brainstorming phase having fun with open hands, throwing around stuff that you're not sure is going to work, and that's where you really tap into some real creativity. The first time I saw this play out, which you might have heard me, if you're a massive podcast fan of this show... Um, you might have heard me tell this story before, but it, it illustrates the point so well. Um, so back in college, the first time I learned this uh, principle, I was it was my final year in college, and we were in this situation where my tutor told us that we were going to do this final project, and the we're going to have to present four 
legitimately different ideas. And this is key. It's key that they're not four different versions of the same thing, but four different, completely different answers to the same problem. Uh, and so we were given this, this task to come up with a problem, any brief, any job, it's a dream job. It's a fake dream job. And we could come up with whatever we wanted to come up with. And I came up with this idea that, uh, Apple was going to hire me to, to help do a campaign to sell their red iPods. Um, this was back in the day. I think they have some red iPods now or iPhones now. Um, but this is like 2007, 2008. They were selling these red iPods where 10% or $10 goes to um, help fight AIDS in Africa. Uh, it's like this whole red campaign. And uh, I, my brief was I was going to create uh, a campaign to help give this red iPod an extra boost to add interest to this product. And I came up with my first idea that I know, knew that I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, I, as soon as I came up with the problem, I came up with the answer. And I was really annoyed that I had to present four ideas because I already knew that I'd come up with the one. And the idea was that I was going to draw these, I don't know, <laughs> I don't really even know if there was an idea in it. But I was going to do these uh, African mask drawings uh, as a poster kind of thing that was going to be packaged with the iPod. Um, I'm not, I don't really honestly know, but I was stoked on it at the time. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, come up with this idea. I put all this time and energy into it and I'm sure that it's the one. And so the night before the presentation where I have to present all four ideas to my tutors, I just think, all right, I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to come up with the three ideas uh, super fast and just, and I, and I focused on really not trying, like, how can I just come up with the lamest things, you know, and set them next to my best idea to really make my good idea look fantastic. And so I came up with this idea about a prescription pill bottle that had some kind of artwork in it. I don't know. It was about the medicine that we're going to send to Africa. Uh, and I came up with another idea and then I'm laid there staring at the ceiling, trying my hardest to come up with something really stupid. And now I'm just super tired and I'm trying to just think super fast. And I think, I don't know, what if there's just like, you know, we'll take the hip new sound that the kids are listening to, uh, the indie rock music, and we'll make a coloring book out of it. I don't know, something dumb. I go in the next day to present all four ideas and I really, really sell my first idea. I'm really like, this is the one, these African mask drawings. And I go super into detail. Then I just casually kind of mention the other uh, three ideas and pack it all up. And my tutors are like, so you're clearly, you're definitely doing the indie rock coloring book one, right? And I was like, Mm, I'm, I was kind of partial to the mask thing. Uh, they were like, no, no, no. The mask thing is terrible. Do the indie rock coloring book. And I did. And so I spent the entire year uh, in that class working on that project, thinking through what that would look like. And uh, after I finished it, I put it on my website and I sent a little note to Pitchfork Media uh, and just said, Hey, this is a fake project that I did for school, but I thought you guys might like it features some of the bands that you guys, uh, follow like Panda Bear and, uh, Bon Iver and stuff like that. And they ran a story on it and they said, it's not real, but we think it's a cool idea. And about a year later, the real version was published by Chronicle Books. And that thing 
to date was probably the thing that's had the most reach in my career. It was on uh, E's That Morning Channel, or it was on E's That Morning Show. It was on, it was in the USA Today gift guide. It was in all over the friggin' place. And it was this idea that I was trying to throw away. Uh, and it ended up being the thing that launched my career. And I think that there is a real creative principle within this idea of coming up with lots of ideas, not being economical with your creativity, not thinking it's going to run out. I have a pocket notebook in my shop on creativepeptalk.com that says uh, that, that creativity is like breastfeeding. The more you pump, the more it flows. So the more breast milk that you use, the more you produce. Not as a man, but if you're a mom, that's true. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think that for me, one thing that's been really helpful is this idea of the rule of threes. Is I try to just come up with three ideas for everything that I do. No matter what I'm going to do, I try to come up with three different solutions. I think there's kind of magic in these rule of threes. You know, Harry, Hermione, and everybody's favorite, Dobby the Elf. Uh, <laughs> I hate, I just wanted to bring him into this because I don't like you, Dobby. It's, I feel like Dobby, is it Dobby, Dobby? We don't even know what your name is. I don't like you. You're the Jar Jar Binks of the wizarding world, and I wish you never existed. I hate to get so, I know that this house elf has already had a lot of abuse and I don't want to go there, but I just don't like him. And I feel like he keeps coming back. You think he's gone, you think he's out of the books and then they bring him in at one of the last movies. They're like, surprise, we have this guy coming back. And everyone's like, no, why couldn't you bring back the cool people that die? Um, why couldn't Dumbledore? Anyway, shh, I'm not gonna give you any more spoilers in case somehow you don't know the whole story of Harry Potter. And if you don't, get on it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, back to the point. I think that there is real magic in not being economical with your ideas. And if you will be willing to try to go for quantity sometimes, I think it creates the right environment where not all the pressure is on this one idea being great. And I think if you can use that as a practice, you're more likely to come up with something interesting. So number one is come up with multiple ideas. Don't just go with the first one. When you're going through the obstacles, don't just grab the first key that you see and try it on the door. Look around, try different keys, try to find the one, the right key. Uh, there's lots and lots of options floating around in your brain. Number two, number two, the second obstacle keeping you from your creative gold is trying too hard. One of the obstacles that Harry, Hermione, and Ron face is the devil's snare. And the devil's snare works a lot like quicksand. It's this root, that tree root thing that the more you squirm, the more it squeezes. And it's just like quicksand. I don't know how, I don't know if quicksand even really exists, but I know that like in the 80s, it got a lot of play in 80s films. And uh, this idea that when you sink in quicksand, you don't want to writhe and struggle because the more that you do, the more that you sink to your doom. And I think that this quicksand, this devil's snare, is a lot like the anxiety and the striving of our brains. I think the part of your brain that produces that white knuckle like clenching like I gotta do this I've gotta make this thing happen is like quicksand for your creativity and when you go to make your ideas when you go when you go to do your work the more that you struggle and writhe and just try to make this creativity happen it's like struggling super hard to have fun it's like we're gonna have fun but you can't have fun 
when you're trying so hard. It's like the cool kids at school, you know, the kid that wants to be super cool. The more he tries to be cool, the less cool that he actually is. And it's this reverse logic. Uh, Alan Watts talks about this idea and not about being cool. Not the, this philosopher Alan Watts does not talk about how to be cool. He talks about this idea of the reverse logic and how a lot of things work like this. This idea of floating. If you want to float, you got to try to sink to float. And if you try to float, you're going to sink. Uh, he talks about it in the book, The Insecurity of Wisdom. And... Uh, no, 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 no. The wisdom of insecurity. <laughs> the wisdom of insecurity. And uh, I tried so hard to sound so smart dropping that title in like that. And I just show my true colors. It's just impossible. I'm just a complete buffoon. Tr I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to have some wisdom. Uh, but it all comes out wrong. And he talks about this reverse logic, these things where you've got to approach it in this upside down way. And I think creativity is like that. The harder you uh, try, the, the worse you do. Gary Shandling, the comedian, said that uh, there's nothing less funny than someone trying to be funny. And I also think it plays out in this quote that uh, Jerry Seinfeld said, where he said that if you want to make a good living in comedy, forget about making a living and focus really hard on making good comedy. Uh, and so don't get so caught up in it paying off. Get caught up in the activity. Be caught up in the present moment, making the work rather than what the work is going to afford for you down the road. Uh, in my own life, I've seen this time and time again. I remember early on in my career, I was so desperate to make this into a career. And to be honest, it's because I don't have any other marketable skills and I had a baby. I had, we were married and we had kids already uh, right out of college and I had all this pressure and we had a mortgage and I kind of worked myself into a corner in a lot of ways. And, you know, I just knew that I don't have other marketable skills. Um, so I'm in this catch 22 and I'm in this place where I'm like, I need this work to be good so I can make a career of this and pay my bills. But the harder I tried, the worse the work got. And it wasn't until I got a job, I decided to get a job in, you know, I didn't want to get an, I had had a graphic design job in the past and I found for me personally doing this kind of uh, entry-level pseudo-creative work in the same programs that I was using in my freelance work zapped all my energy so that by the time I got off work, I couldn't really get back into the work that I needed to be making to push my uh, career forward. And also, I just didn't like it. I, you know, page layout and all that jazz, I'm not very good at it naturally, and I just didn't want to do it. And so I tried to find something different, something that would feel meaningful too. Um, and I thought that'd be a way that it wouldn't feel boring. And so I got this job at a youth shelter uh, that was connected to a juvenile detention center. And I worked there for about eight to nine months. And it was just absolutely uh, brutal and amazing. You know, I don't think, I think it's a pretty amazing gig for the right type of person. And although I think uh, I have uh, the heart for the work, I don't have, my heart is too squishy and raw. I'm kind of like what you would call an empath. I'm very empathetic. And so these kids in the youth shelter with these meth addicted parents and a lot of them were meth addicted and just all these horrendous stories. And I, you know, a lot of the people that worked there just had such tough hearts and they were just like big brute people that just could like, you know, take care of business. And I would just go home every night, uh, many, many nights sobbing to my wife of these stories. It was just totally wrecking me. And it was a really formative experience. I'm grateful that I got to do it, but, uh, it was just this, it just hit. I was at rock bottom. There were these moments where I had to go work in the detention center and I would be sat back there um, 
I remember these times, especially the first time I ever had to work in the detention center where there's no windows. Uh, you're back there alone. You open this super heavy door. You unlock it with your keys. You walk past all of their little cells, their own little rooms that they're locked in. You go back to this room um, that's like the office room that you unlock. You go in. You close the door. You're locked in there with the computer. You're taking the notes for the beginning where you have to kind of say um, how the handoff was done, who handed off the keys to you. You're sat there, and I remember having a panic attack while I'm sat in that room thinking there are 12 youth offenders. There are 12 people back here, some of which have done horrible, ungodly, unimaginable things. Um, some of them which that are just kind of victims themselves and, um, and all of them really were in more than one way just born into really terrible situations. And uh, I'm sat back there panicking because in five minutes I've got to go unlock each one of their doors and let them out and spend the next eight hours locked up with them uh, alone. And I have to be the boss. And if you know me, <laughs> these kids were only like, I was like 22. These kids were like five years younger than me. And I'm not tough. If you look at me, I look like a five-year-old with a beard. Like, get, like seriously, every photo of me, I look so cute. And I'm not proud of it because I'm a 30-year-old man. I'm not trying to go for cute. That's not my thing. But I have this five-year-old energy. I'm a goofy guy. I just can't play the part. I can't keep these kids in line. They walked all over me. I was just, it was a disaster. And it was excruciating emotionally. And I was in this rock bottom place. And it was in that place that I started to build up my career because all of a sudden I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to gain anything with my creativity. I, was, I didn't know if it mattered how hard I tried. Uh, I just wanted to make stuff that I had fun making. I just wanted to make stuff that was uh, a good time for me, that, an exploration of something that was interesting to me. And I think that's when I really started to unlock this idea of the open mode. So you can go watch. There's a bunch of videos on YouTube with John Cleese, the Monty Python hero. Um, John Cleese talking about the open and the closed mode in creativity. Uh, this, this idea that... Um, when you're when you're most creative is when you're having fun when you don't have the critics you don't have that critical part of your brain that's trying to edit you you're just trying to play i always say it like michael jordan could never get into the zone if he had to ref the game at the same time and when you're creating work and you're trying to scrutinize it and pull something out of it and make it useful right at the same time that you're trying to have a good time, you're not going to have a good time. You're going to have a bad time. And uh, that's what you don't want. And that's the thing that's going to stop you from your best work. And in that season, I came up with this project called Nod, where I drew a new character every weekday for a year and posted it on Tumblr. And it was just, it, it was not uh, the quickest way to get from point A to point B. I wanted to get out of that job so badly. And I work with students and I, and I meet people all the time. They're so desperate to change their situation overnight that they won't do the work necessary to take them where they could be in a year. And so if you're feeling that desperation and you're making work from that place, you're not going to be making your best work work. And it was when I was in that rock bottom place and I could see no other uh, directions that I just started making some work that I was excited about little by little, day by day. And a year later, I was in a totally different place. In nine months, I quit my job. I had more freelance work and uh, things were looking up. Uh, and so this point is all about reminding you that you need to have fun in your work. I remember these moments where I was working at the youth shelter and we had to be trained uh, with these videos and these techniques and we had to get certified 
to be able to restrain teenagers. And I can honestly say that at the place that I worked, everybody there was deeply dedicated to showing these kids dignity and respect. But sometimes those kids would be violent they would try to hurt other kids. Sometimes they would be trying to commit suicide themselves. And you had to figure out how to safely uh, restrain them. And there was this button that you would push on your walkie-talkie. And it made this godforsaken noise, this screeching, this And when you heard that noise, everybody flipped out, dropped what they were doing, and ran to the place in the building where there was uh, help needed. And I remember these times, and it would your heart would drop out of your chest when you heard that noise. And, I, and actually that noise, I've heard it a few times, even years and years later, and it still puts me into ultimate panic mode. And so you would run, here I am, this little guy, goofy guy, running to help this kid, in the detention center, you know, five of us trying to safely restrain this person. And uh, I'm there, it's a night shift, 3 a.m. This happened multiple times. Three in the morning, I'm exhausted and I'm sweating and I'm on the ground out of my league, just not in the right place. And I'm absolutely hopeless. And it was in that zone that I had nothing to give. I didn't have any of that striving energy. I couldn't white knuckle anything else because I was just at the edge of my limits. I was at the rock bottom. And so creativity at that time had to become an outlet, a source of enjoyment, fun, expression, uh, it wasn't something that I could do in that moment to strategically get ahead. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think that that's actually okay. Both sides of those are okay if you get them in the right order. But here's what I want to say on this number two. I want to say that if you are in a place that you don't want to be and you think that your creative work is the ticket out, don't work from a place of desperation and hopelessness. Don't make your creativity out of that work. Stop what you're doing and allow your creativity to be an outlet for your fun, for your expression, for you to breathe out and for you to give out uh, the th a resource and, a, and, a, and a, uh, an outlet for the things that you need to replenish what you're doing rather than try to take more. So the last obstacle in the way before Harry can attain, obtain the Sorcerer's Stone is a mirror. It's the mirror of Erised. And for you, it's the same. The thing that's stopping you more than anything is that thing in the mirror. It's you. And uh, man, out of all the people I've worked with, this is genuinely number one on the list, especially the people that deal with insecurity like I do. Things that, you know... Uh, uh, not a super healthy vision of yourself. That's something that I've always struggled with ever since I was a kid, just kind of thinking that I was second rate. That, you know, I think it started with um, all the things they measure, uh, all the value measures as kids are things that my value doesn't show up on. So for me, it's like, uh, you know, sports, math, and like part time jobs as a teenager, all these things. I don't measure up. I'm terrible. I'm worse than the other guys. And so I get this terrible uh, vision of myself and what I'm capable of doing. And for me, the further I've gone in life, the more I've realized that, the, that it's all a mind game. The entire thing of human pursuit is beating your brain into submission 
and not allowing that part of your brain to hold you back, that part that's trying to keep you safe, that part that's trying to just do the same thing we've always done because you're alive so it can't be that bad, uh, just keep doing this thing, beating that thing to submission and saying we're going further than that. We're going to push to the edge. Maybe we're not capable, but we're going to push further and further and further. And actually, in the spirit of Harry Potter, let's, uh, let's go to this quote from J.K. Rowling. She said that it is impossible to live without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not live at all, which in, in which case you've failed by default. And I know for a fact that the science is there to back it up. If you go read this book called Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck, it goes deep into this concept of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. The fixed mindset says that your IQ, your ability, your personality, everything you've got going on, your, your willpower, your habits, uh, it's fixed. It's not going to change. You don't have the ability to grow that thing. And so then every test and every opportunity and every challenge, it doesn't become something that you get to try out. It doesn't become something that you get to have a go at and try your best and make some effort. It becomes a litmus test for your value where you have to prove yourself. And if you fail at this task, then you're not worthy because you have no ability to grow. You have no ability to change. And so every test becomes a test of your inherent value that you cannot change. And when you approach tests like that, you don't bring your best self and you don't bring a brain that's willing to grow and adapt and learn. And in fact, you're going to run from tests. You're going to run from challenges. You're going to run from obstacles because nobody wants their value tested like that. It's just too daunting to take a test that says you're great or you suck and there's nothing you can do about it. So you run from obstacles and you don't push yourself and you don't live to the edge and you're completely petrified of failure because if you fail once, it's a lifetime of failure. It is a mark on your history and your worth as a person and there's nothing you can do about it. But if you embrace the growth mindset, if you believe that you can change yourself, you can change your ability, you can expand your ability to learn and push forward, if you embrace that, that's where the good stuff is. And it's not something you do once, it's something you do over an entire lifetime. For me personally, let's go back to the youth center days. Uh, <laughs> when you're working at the youth center, all the kids are playing cards all the time and they all have cool card tricks, they can do all the cool card stuff. And for me personally, Learning those little tricks was always something that I avoided. And I think part of it, it's really dumb, but part of it is a self-worth thing. Like, I'm just not a guy who learns stuff like that. And my brother was the exact opposite. He has a, I think, healthy confidence in his abilities uh, to learn things. And so he learned all kinds of things like juggling. And uh, this is gross, so you can just not listen for like 32 seconds. Uh, he can blow a spit bubble off of his tongue. Uh, into the air. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But all kinds of these like little weird trick things, he would learn how to do them. And he, you know, can shuffle cards in all kinds of interesting ways. And I just, anytime that was uh, uh, an opportunity to learn some novel, weird little thing, I just ran the other way. And I was so uh, bored in so many places when they're when I'm in the youth shelter locked up with these kids and all we have is cards that I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn that card shuffling thing that I've always wanted to learn. And I thought maybe I won't be able to, but what else am I going to do? Might as well try it. And it's the whole thing where you take the deck, you split it in half and you like until they're on top of each other. And then you bend the decks together and then they go and they go all back into one deck. I hope that's a picture painted clearly for your minds. But anyway, it took me a long time, but I finally did it. And uh, that is an example of what the growth mindset can do for your life. You can learn how to shuffle cards. Uh, and then also in the beginning of my career, um, I really, really avoided uh, coming up with conceptual illustration. 
and I actually came up with all of these reasons why conceptual illustration didn't matter and it wasn't important and it was over-celebrated and all of this stuff to hide from the challenge of getting good at conceptual illustration. And now, 10 years later, it's my favorite illustration. It's my favorite stuff to do. And sometimes I still fail at it. But man, that is the work that matters the most to me. That's my most important work. And I spent several years avoiding even trying from a fear of failure. And it's the third obstacle in the way from your creative gold is looking at you in the mirror. So a few weeks ago, I put on this event called Creative Pep Rally, and, uh, and I almost feel guilty saying that I put it on because I could not have done it without my wife, Sophie. She helped me so much with this. My friend, friend uh, Daniel Evans, uh, who's a designer and illustrator, uh, lettering person, helped me a ton, and uh, Kyle Sheely and Brad Montague and Andrew Nyer and people at Blockfort and Roosevelt. I just want to thank them. Thank, thank, thank. Anyway, we put on an event. That's my point. We put on an event called Creative Pep Rally. It's one of the best experiences of my entire life. Uh, and I already feel nostalgic about those times two weeks ago. And uh, the thing, I actually didn't expect to kind of come out the other side without with a uh, massive transformation. Um, because, you know, I was just so deep in the details. These are my friends. And although I massively believe in all that they're doing, I know them really well. I know a lot of the stuff they think and talk about. And, uh, but just soaking up in that environment, I had a major breakthrough. And it was that I realized that with three kids and a mortgage and an illustration career and a podcast and bills and all of this jazz, that I'd just become so serious in my everyday life. In my everyday life and in my creativity, I became so focused on the strategic element, so focused on what I could get out of my work rather than enjoying the work itself and spending time with these people, these, these people that were just so willing to delight and so willing to explore the novel and the fun. It was in that time where I just had this thing exposed in me that I was just not having fun anymore. I'm not saying I wasn't enjoying it. I enjoy the strategic. I enjoy the business. I enjoy all that stuff. But I wasn't allowing myself to just have some fun. And I was really struck by this thing. And I started exploring what I thought about that and, and how that maybe was playing out in my life and my career. And uh, I got thinking about that. There's a definition, one definition of creativity is something that is both novel and useful. And I really like that definition. I don't think it really sums up everything, but I really like it. And this idea of creativity being this thing that's both novel and useful. And I realized that I was just getting very, very obsessed with the useful. I was getting really good, I think. Uh, I feel really good about my ability to make things that are useful to people. Uh, and I was putting so much time and energy onto that side. And I think that that's good. That's all really good. But I was definitely neglecting the novel part. And as I was kind of ruminating and meditating on this idea, I realized something even more profound, I think, within that definition is the order of those things. It's not just novel and useful. I think it's novel, then useful. And I think if you will approach your creativity in this way, that it will be much more explosive and you will find that creative gold. This is the main idea of this episode. And if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. When you go to make your creative work, think about novel first. And what I mean by novel is think about fun. Think about enjoying the present moment coming up with ideas, making your creative work, trust your intuition, listen to your natural, innate 
visceral curiosity. What are you genuinely excited and interested in? Trust that without having to understand what the use of it might be. If you can tap into that first, that's when it starts to get good. For me personally, when I was doing that Nod project, I just knew that I was excited about it. I just knew I needed to make that creative work. I didn't know how making those characters could actually play out into my career. And I think that a lot of, there's a lot of things about this that are misunderstood. I think you get people in either camp that naturally fall into either camp. And we think about this uh, idea of novel and useful in this dualistic way when we approach creativity, either this black and white way, either it's got to be, you think, oh, creativity is all about novel. It's all about silliness. It's all about having fun. Or you go on the other side. You think it's all about how can we use this? What's the purpose of this? What's the strategy? How can this pay? off. And I think we get caught up in doing one or the other. Or even worse, we get caught up in doing the useful first and the novel second. I think you see this with kids' cartoons all the time. You see the, the ones that are useful first are the cartoons created by marketing companies where a marketing company sits around and they say, what do kids like? They like robots. They like dinosaurs. They like trains. They like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. So it's uh, robot dinosaurs trains. And, uh, and they create this show out of usefulness. But then the show's no good, so it goes nowhere and it doesn't end up being that useful. Or they just get all sucked into the novel. It's just fun. It's just a good time. We're just trying to make something that pleases our intuition and curiosity and we're having a good time, but they never get to figuring out why it matters to anybody else. And I think that the truth is that you got to do both and I think you should do them in the right order. And so I think it's totally fine to go with your gut, ask yourself, you know, the story doesn't get interesting in a movie, in a book, until the main character knows what they want. What do you really, really want? What fires you up? When I take the time to step away and think deeply about what do I want from the next season of my life on a gut level, on an intuition level, on a, I just want to under, I want to play in that world. I want to have a good time. I want to make that kind of work. And I just want to get out of bed and do that stuff. When I pause, when I realize I don't have that in my life and I pause and I do that, that creates jet fuel for my creativity. But I think after you've gone into that woods that's beckoning you, it's totally fine to ask yourself, how is this useful to other people? Even in a way that they're willing to pay for it. So for me, I like to ask myself, what do I want to do? What do I really, really, really want to do for other people? And I think that's the right order. And so on this episode today, I want you to embrace the idea of creativity as novel, then useful. And I have a little homework assignment for you cute little creative pepperonis. It's called hashtag novel, then useful. Here's what I want you to do. I did it for this episode's artwork. I made a piece of artwork and here's the brief. Here's the problem. Here's how I set it up. Uh, number one, the first thing you got to do is come up with three distinctly different ideas for a piece of work. If you're a musician, it could be a song. If you're a writer, it could be whatever writers do, a book, I don't know, a short story, a blog post, uh, whatever. I, I'm not a writer. Uh, <laughs> three different distinct paths, and they can just be sketches. They could be uh, whatever, but you don't even have to show them, but just come up with three different directions. Number two, don't sweat it, don't struggle, don't strive, listen to your intuition. Stop, if you're gonna struggle and strive, strive to figure out what sounds fun. Stop what you're doing, really think about 
which of these explores the stuff that I'm genuinely excited about today, not 10 years ago. Don't fall into the rut and go backwards and just go to what you think you already like. There's another Alan Watts quote. I don't know it exactly, but it's uh, really great. And he says, you are not obligated to be the person you were five minutes ago. And I love that quote. My friend uh, Kyle Sheely told me that quote. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, and don't go back to what you used to get excited about because that might not be lighting your fuel right now. Ask yourself, what, what really is exciting and fun? What sounds like a blast to make? And then three, push yourself, don't prove yourself in the work. For this piece, I wanted to make, I, I thought it sounded fun to make a massive, really dense piece of work that I haven't given myself time to do in a long time. And it was this big scene, and you can see it on my Instagram, at Andy J Pizza. Uh, and you can see it on the episode art, a portion of it, but the big one is going to be on Instagram, and it's just this massive piece, all these characters, all this weird stuff going on, and uh, I pushed myself, not proved myself, but I wanted to push myself, so in terms of the growth fixed, don't try to make something to prove your worth, but do feel comfortable pushing and challenging and trying something that you're not sure is going to work out. This piece of work in particular... Uh, this giant uh, landscape of all these weird characters. This is the third time over the past probably four years that I've tried to make something just like this. Two other times I got about 60% done and then gave up because I just felt like I couldn't do it. But instead of being, uh, you know, destroyed by this failure of being able to do this type of picture, this dense thing. I thought I'm gonna try it again. I'm gonna push myself. I'm gonna try something that I'm not sure I'm capable of. And that's the third thing you gotta do. So you gotta do three ideas. You gotta have fun and you gotta push yourself. Don't prove yourself. And I want you to post it on Instagram and hashtag it novel then useful. So N O V E L T H E N U S E F U L and uh, I will go on there and and see what you're doing and uh, maybe you guys can check out that hashtag too and we can form a little uh, a pizza of pepperonis of creative pepperonis a creative pe uh, community of pepperoni I don't know anyway we'll get the the creative pep talk crew together and give give each other feedback and cheer each other on and do all that good stuff so that's my challenge to you and just be aware. As you head down this path of trying to have a good time making something, trying to trust your curiosity, uh, you might be the type of person that leans towards the useful. You might have a lot of responsibilities and you might not have a lot of time and you might need things to turn around quick. And so while you're enjoying yourself, exploring this thing that you're not sure has any purpose, there's going to be a voice in your head that keeps saying, why are you working on this? You've got 50 other things you need to do. You've got other things you could be doing that would be way more productive. And if you're hearing that voice while you're making this piece, you are on the right path because you're choosing novel first. And when you're done with this piece, you're going to learn some new things. I had some unexpected breakthroughs at the end of this. And it was funny because after I finished it, it, was, it wasn't, wow, this is amazing. Even though I like how it came out, it was more... There are some tropes and things in my work that are apparent in this that I think it's time to move on from, or at least uh, downplay a little bit and kind of transition. Uh, I want to I want to feature more people in my work, and I have you know a lot in the past couple of years, but there aren't very many people in this piece. And although I really really love this piece in tons and tons of ways. Uh, that was a breakthrough that I had only by just exploring this natural inclination. And so uh, I encourage you to take this on board and I hope that it really, really helps. All right, dudes, that's it for another week. I hope that you enjoyed it. I got some more fantastic stuff cooking in the crock pot for next week in the coming months. I, oh man, this is just such a good time in my life. I love doing the show.
I love this connection with you guys. And uh, I just want you guys to know that uh, your stories and meeting you and talking with you, I have cried many times uh, in and around those situations because I really care and I'm just... Uh, just super thankful to be able to do this with you guys. So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Thanks for sharing. And I'll be back next week. Hey, let me just say thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Nate Utesh and his band Metavari for all the other tunes. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash Metavari. Thanks to all of you guys for listening to the podcast and uh, all that you do. Thanks, guys. I really, really appreciate it. And I will be back soon. But until then, do whatever you got to do to stay pepped up.